What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Jonathan Glick. Jonathan is an internet OG who experienced the dawn of the internet while at AOL, helped the New York Times go digital, and spent time at an expert network advising people on the internet. Now he's focused on the next evolution of the internet, which is, as you can guess, the metaverse. Because of his deep experience with internet technologies, Jonathan is able to eloquently explain the opportunities, dangers, and details that come with the dawn of the metaverse. Jonathan has also been hard at work with the legendary metaverse thought leader, Matthew Ball on how to create an investment vehicle that allows anyone to get access to the emergent metaverse. If you want to dive deep in the history of the internet and have an edge in this new metaverse world, then this is one you do not want to miss. Please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Glick. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. My background. So I, um, I uh, was a, uh, a political science undergrad and I came to New York from Canada. I'm originally from Vancouver, went to McGill, uh, thinking that I wanted to do uh, something involved in politics and uh, quickly discovered that all my friends in politics were miserable and all my friends in media were having a really good time. And the people who were having the most fun, this was back in 1992, 93, were people working uh, on what was sort of the precursor to the commercial internet. These were online services. I had a friend working uh, for Spin Magazine, which was the uh, the cool alternative music magazine, and uh, he needed someone to help him run the his AOL area, which was <laughs> the, the the chat room and message board basically that was frequented by people who liked grunge music. And uh, so I, I my job was to run that. And in so doing, I learned all about online community and, and, and then programming and, and a whole bunch of other things. And I ended up getting hired by the New York Times to build their AOL stuff. And then uh, when I managed to persuade them, their, their website too. And I became the head of product development and technology for the New York Times for quite a long time, about eight years. Um, we built up what at that time was by far the biggest newspaper website um, the first ad server, the first real, uh, you know, email newsletters, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, and then after that, I, I thought I would try something different. I ended up going to, uh, wall street and becoming part of a new company called Gerson Lehrman group. Uh, your listeners might know it more as GLG, which is an expert network. Basically what we did was we created this huge directory of uh, experts on hundreds of thousands of subjects. And when investors wanted to know something about that very specific topic, they could, uh, they could, they could come to us and we would connect them in a variety of different ways with a panel of, of extremely specialized experts. And, uh, and so I was the head of product and technology for, for that effort. And that became a big success and convinced me to try other things after that. So, bunch of other projects, but those are the two most important in terms of my background for this purpose. That's incredible. Okay. So you were, you were essentially at the dawn of the internet for uh, the New York times and, and kind mm. of helping them go from, yeah, j- just a, just a traditional kind of media print company into a internet, you know, native company. That's so right. How was that process? Was that like a huge leap or was it actually quite easy? Um, 
Well, it was it was a huge leap in in a number of ways. I think the most important was that, you know, as we see in all of these kinds of transitions, and I think this is a theme we're going to come back to uh, in this conversation. You know, people have a hard time imagining the next phase of something being other than what it is now. So, you know, my bosses at the New York Times were very attached for business reasons as well as for cultural and emotional reasons to the package of the New York Times. You know, like how pages were laid out, uh, how, uh, how the rhythm and cadence of the news itself. And elements that we might have introduced that were more internet native uh, or more, more web native were very daunting because they seem to threaten some of that very, very important context. So I'll give you an example. One of my jobs very, very early on, uh, when I got the New York Times to agree to put more content on the internet, was to actually take a, a, a picture of the front page of each section. If you know the New York Times, it's organized into sections, the you know, A section, B section, and so on. And we would actually have a, have a kind of graphic representation of the front of the section. And I would have to map the, the headlines, the graphical headlines uh, on this picture to the individual articles. So someone could click on the individual headlines on this picture and jump right to an article, which if you think about it is totally insane. But from the perspective of the people who, who ran the newspaper and loved the newspaper as employees, they felt that that look and feel of a, a sort of a graphical section front was essential to helping their readers know that this was New York Times, that it was high quality and so on. So, you know, obviously over time they began to realize that it was completely insane to keep doing this and that nobody cared and it didn't matter. But at, at the time it made sense to them. That's so cool. Okay, so are you seeing the this kind of shift in, in uh, or, or, or almost like a new technological paradigm with cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and this kind of revolution? Or is this more broadly a, uh, the, the paradigm is now shifting towards like the metaverse, which is a, a coalescing of all these different types of technologies all in one? Well, I, I, yeah, so that's exactly right. So you see the same kind of attachment to old forms um, in our imaginings of for the metaverse, right? So, uh, you know, again, when I was starting out in, uh, you know, in the industry, when I worked with AOL and so on, you know, we would use metaphors like the information superhighway, right? And it was sort of this idea of like, you know, uh, you know, this huge you know, tunnel that you would go down to and, and information would flow towards you. And it, it, it had a big effect on people's design choices. You know, similarly, when we get, we began to design newspapers and magazines for the internet, the, the interface invariably was like a newsstand. Like literally you would see a, a, a web page that had like, you know, covers of magazines on it and you would click one and it would open up you know, as if the pages were opening up and you would go into it because people understood that to be an essential element of what a magazine was. And uh, I think a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the same tendencies are in play when we imagine um, the, the metaverse, right? We, 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 we think that the natural or best uh, user experience for an immersive um 
an immersive experience, an immersive environment, is one that resembles the, the current world more or less. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in, 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 in my work with, um, you know, with Matthew Ball, we do a lot of evaluations of various metaverse related products. And we see, for example, a lot of companies who have created, you know, essentially metaverse convention centers. You've probably seen some of these. You, you go into them and there's conference rooms and, you know, you can sit down at a table and there's someone uh, at the front who's standing on a, on a you know, in a, on a lectern and giving a presentation. And everyone's sort of sitting there in their avatar form watching this presentation. And I, I never understand why this UX in particular would be one that's particularly helpful. I mean, there's nothing going on. Everyone's just sitting there. Um, why would this be the best possible use of an immersive slash 3D uh, UX? And it's not, right? There's obviously more interesting things you could do. For example, uh, the presentation itself could be something that we as, 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 as avatars could go into. Or if we're having a discussion, rather than have everyone just sit around the table with our silly avatar heads bobbing up and down as if we we're really there, we could be doing some graphical concept mapping together, some kind of 3D whiteboarding, right? Um, all those are kind of more natural and native to what an, the, the expression of conversation or presentation might be in the metaverse, but people are very attached, entrepreneurs are attached, um, investors are attached to the traditional notion of a conference room or a convention center. And so they project those things forward into the new technology and it'll take a while for them to be revealed as pointless. I, I absolutely love that. It's super interesting that we do recreate the exact same things that we have in our physical world in these kind of virtual worlds. And yeah, I've, I've been to a lot of these, you know, auction houses in, inside the virtual worlds or conference rooms or whatever, and they just look exactly like the physical counterparts. And, and you're right that it's, it's totally not taking advantage of this new medium that is, you know, we can basically do whatever we want with it. Yeah, it's, it's you know, what what tends to happen, right, is that, you know, just going back to my experience, the people who did the design for the website were the same people who were doing the design for the newspaper, right? And they felt they had done a great job with the design of the newspaper. So they had a lot of, you know, investment in perpetuating those designs. And so it wasn't until a kind of a new generation appears who doesn't have that same uh, connection to the legacy product where they can look at it completely fresh and say, well, you know, the way we should actually conduct a conversation or a, a whiteboarding session on the metaverse is to have everyone be, you know, uh, uh, able to, you know, I don't know, put down a word and connect it to another word and fly around those words or blow those words up so we can fly inside the concept. Like, and that'll all happen. And it'll happen because there'll be people who are native, right, native to these environments, the way fish are native to water, and they won't imagine it any other way. Incredible. Okay, so so your background, just going back a little bit, AOL, New York Times, you work, also worked to the Expert Network, so really just the, the dawn of the internet. So what are you up to today? So um, today I'm doing a lot of work with uh, big media companies and IP holders, I guess you could say. I hate that word, but just you know, people who have um, interesting intellectual property assets and helping them conceptualize how they might best uh, manifest for this future that we're, we're, you know, we're all starting to call the metaverse. So 
I'm a consultant, but often I'm a sort of an executive producer of these new projects that will result in new kinds of NFT collections, new kinds of games, new kinds of blockchain-based experiences um, that, you know, that, that I think we'll look back on and say as being, you know, seminal, important steps towards the metaverse. Incredible. Okay. So, so I want to ask, how did you first learn about cryptocurrencies and also how did you first learn about NFTs? What was that experience like? Mm -hmm. Okay. Cryptocurrencies. Well, I mean, we all learned about, you know, I mean, Bitcoin, I think, I guess pretty early on, but I'll be uh, honest. I was never that interested in, in Bitcoin. That just didn't capture my, um, my imagination. Not that I don't understand the virtues of it. And, and I certainly do, but just for me personally, I couldn't see what value I could bring to it or why it mattered. But um, Ethereum for me was uh, an absolute lightning bolt, you know, just a, a, one of the most amazing life-changing, um, you know, inventions uh, or innovations of, 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 I can imagine. And that's because having worked in both, you know, a proprietary online service like AOL and then on the internet, having gone through Web 2.0 and then what Web 2.0 sort of became, um, I've always been very uh, sensitive to the reality that for the most part, once, um, once a company manages to make itself the center of a kind of network or protocol, it's extremely hard to dislodge that company. And they have a, uh, they have a, um, a hegemonic effect on the community of entrepreneurs and of creative ideas around them. And that's not to say that that's all bad, but it just means that we, we tend to develop these new um, ways of communicating or sharing information. And uh, one or some small number of companies finds themselves at the center of that, that, that interchange. And then they basically dictate the terms of how everybody's going to create. Uh, again, all of these are innovations and all of them have made the world in many ways better. But for me, it's always just been a little depressing that there wasn't a way to keep it, uh, to keep innovations open uh, such that they kept providing a creative platform uh, and they didn't close up and become uh, owned by a hegemonic entity. And obviously that was one of the design principles behind Ethereum, the idea that a protocol itself could be uh, uh, collectively owned and developed. Uh, and that's extremely attractive to me because it, 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 it suggests um, a much longer and enduring creative uh, set of conditions than the ones that we've, I guess, regressed to at this point in Web 2.0. Absolutely. Again, incredible. Okay, so I, I agree with you that um, with these new, I mean, what we've seen in the past is that any new industry, any new kind of technological paradigm, basically the, these uh, large companies are, or entities are formed, they kind of become dominant players and then they, they essentially control this, the, that, that ecosystem or that um, almost that paradigm for, for quite mm -hmm. some time until a new yeah. paradigm comes in. So how, how is that? I, what worries me is that we're going to experience the same thing happen in crypto. Like maybe, maybe not necessarily from like the protocol level, but from a standpoint of, I don't know, like let's just pretend Coinbase becomes mm -hmm. this, you know, all powerful entity and just gobbles up every other exchange and we all have to go through Coinbase. Is that, does that concern you at all? Or do you think that because the nature of crypto, it's so open and so available to everyone, we'll just have constant innovation that that won't happen. <laughs> Andrew, I have 
I have optimistic days and I have pessimistic days. Uh, and I think, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I can probably convince myself of both um, possibilities right now, both the, the optimistic and the pessimistic one, which I think is probably pretty good, actually, that I'm even on the fence. Because, like you said, the, um, the natural entropy of, of telecommunications is towards centralization for a lot of reasons user convenience, network effect, uh, economies of scale, all play to make the big bigger. And once the big become big, they tend to extract their pound of flesh. So uh, just the fact that I think we still have a shot <laughs> is I think quite hopeful. Um, I, I do worry particularly, because I know financial regulation very well, that um, on the road to regulation, certain large players will have um will 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 um will engineer themselves unfair advantages and that is not to say that regulation isn't inevitable regulation of the crypto space is inevitable but i worry that it might be done in such a way that the that the large players are essentially locked in and given um and given outsized advantage all right so do you think that Crypto and especially NFTs, are, are these the, the assets that are needed for the metaverse to actually come to fruition? And is this like this next technological paradigm that we've been touching upon? Right. So first thing I would say about NFTs is that the concept is so broad uh, and so potentially adaptable to so many purposes, many of which we can't currently imagine, that the use cases we see before us today art, collectibles, uh, game pieces. Um, these, these, are, these are just the very, very, very beginning of what the technology will be used for. Um, and to some extent, and I, this is people are gonna find this, maybe this analogy a little weird, but they remind me a lot of URLs in, the, uh, in my early day of the, of, the, of the internet and of the web, which is to say that we looked at URLs early on um, in a very, um, I think today, a very strange way. For example, we were obsessed with the idea that particular URLs were really valuable. You know, that a short URL or a, a funny URL or you know, whatever. And, and, and most of those, most of that imagined value had to do with things that were really silly, like domain names and stuff like that. And, or, and the idea that people would navigate by URLs, for example. Um, I think NFTs today have some of the same, um, some of the same early confusion, which is, which is to say that um, there are things that we imagine are valuable about them that are probably highly predicated and contextual. And that as uh, the way we understand the technology and the way we use the technology evolves, we'll probably think that entirely other use cases are more important Today, URLs are used for vastly more things than we used to imagine, which was essentially for branding. But we, we, you know, in the early days of the web, we imagined that URLs were an important branding device. They really aren't anymore. And if you think about all the things that have happened, like from apps to dynamic URLs and so on, it's quite obvious why they wouldn't be. But at the time, they seemed really important. Um, in terms of the metaverse, I do think that we're going to have a uh, sort of a federation of virtual worlds and that 
certain goods and, and, and certain identity elements will be, uh, will pass between those virtual worlds, right? Like, so your, your resume, for example, will be one that, you know, you can take from virtual world to virtual world. And that resume will almost certainly be an NFT. Uh, your medical records will be one that you can take from, you know, a health and fitness virtual space to a, I don't know, uh, you know, a hospital virtual space. And that will almost certainly be an NFT. So yes, I do think that uh, NFT as we currently understand it, which is to say a unique token, a unique, you know, non-fungible, a special token that uh, uh, lives on the blockchain is a very fundamental technology to the future of the metaverse. So I, I want to quickly touch upon the, the resume idea of as, as NFTs. I think that that's, that's incredible. But also what we're seeing now is a lot of companies in the blockchain sector, they're making, uh, they're looking at on-chain activity from someone's wallet mm. and they're kind of giving NFTs based off of that activity. So it's like, mm. okay, you've done a thousand trades on Uniswap. So you get the Uniswap master badge or whatever. Mm. Isn't that so done, cool? I yeah, love that. It, it's almost like a visual representation. So I can go to someone's profile and I can determine right away, oh my gosh, you know, Jonathan's uh, uh, amazing. Uh, he's an incredible trader because he has all these cool badges and um, he, he loves, uh, you know, OpenSea because he has these badges mm -hmm. or whatever. I think that's a really, really cool um, kind of thing that's happening now. But that's, you know, that's a quick tangent. But No, no, right, but so Andrew, there's something really important in that observation, which is that what we're seeing is a new kind of marketing paradigm, right? So, you know, we've lived for, I don't know, since 1994, 95 with more or less email marketing, right? That's been the most, you know, the single most effective way of reaching someone in a, in a, in a direct way right? without going through a website as a banner ad or something like that. Um, the idea of being able to send someone a visual virtual object directly to their wallet and based on their, their blockchain history is a completely new way of reaching out to them with value. And it will be widely exploited and abused, but I think it's very interesting. Oh yeah, I, I think there's never been a better tool or, or, or basically insight into what customers are doing because now we can look at and, and say, oh, the, the people that bought all my you know digital clothing, mm -hmm. um, I can look at all of them, I can see, oh, uh, they're buying my competitor stuff now, I'm gonna give those specific people free stuff so they come back to me. Oh, I can see that um, you know there's these five wallets just are you know filthy rich, I'm gonna really you know give them more free stuff or whatever. So th there's really cool insights mm -hmm. that, that can be gleaned from this that are a bit dystopian, but also at the same time very powerful. And in, in, in the long term, I think gonna be very rewarding for users because um, at the end of the day, I think we're gonna have a lot of brands and companies compete for users to to you know be uh, involved with them and to like them and to be loyal, et cetera. So um, I, I, I think it's a very, I, overall it's a very, very positive tool. Yeah. All right, so so do you think that are, are, is crypto and NFTs, are they needed for a metaverse to form or could we have a metaverse without these, without these things? I, I think we could. I think we could have a metaverse without them. Um, but it would likely be something quite similar. That is to say there would need to be um, an agreed upon directory that all major virtual worlds slash spaces participated in. And, you know, once you get to that point, well, why not use the blockchain? Uh, that, that's my take on it, which is to say that uh, there probably will be non-blockchain efforts to share identity and uh, object and, um, you know, a privilege and all these sort of other, um, you know, other, other user-centric uh, attributes across virtual spaces. 
that don't depend on the blockchain. That'll probably be an effort of big video game companies, for example. Um, but in the end, if, as, long as, as long as the blockchain is efficient and robust and, and scalable, it seems to me that they'll defer to something that already exists and works. So going off that, do you think that virtual reality, like do you think the actual headsets and having a really truly immersive experience is necessary for there to be a quote unquote true metaverse? Or can we, can we have this metaverse just kind of through our browsers and through our cell phones and stuff? You know, I don't, I, I wish I had a stronger intuition of that. I, I do think, um, I do think the idea suggests the notion of immersion, of going into something. Um, but look, my kid plays a lot of video games and um, we have a really big TV and I, he's going into spaces, you know what I mean? He's inside them and it's a flat screen, so, so maybe not. Um, my dream is, you know, is this sort of 3D holographic experience, uh, but I, I don't want to overly prejudice the, the, you know, the, the concept. And uh, a lot of very smart people think that, you know, augmented reality, the projection of images on top of the world around us is just as or more important than VR. So I think I'm, I'm going to just uh, say that I'm not an expert and, and uh, I'm excited to see what results. So if you see what's going on in the kind of NFT blockchain gaming sector today, there's this concept called play to earn where users mm -hmm. are playing video games and earning money. Yeah. Do you think that that is something that is, is uh, d d first of all, sustainable? That's kind of question number one. Number two, is this what we're going to see happen more often where people are earning value actually from gameplay instead of like third parties like streaming or YouTube or whatever? They're actually playing a game, earning assets in that game, selling those for real money. And, 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 you know, having economic freedom because of that, is that something that you think is going to be very widespread or do you think this is kind of like a, a fad? No, I think it's, I think it's the beginning of, uh, I think it's the beginning of a whole new economic system. I think it's extremely important. Um, but I do think that the tasks and, uh, that people are going to be rewarded for are going to become increasingly less arbitrary. So in other words, if you think about axes and, someone's playing and mating these dudes and uh, creating more little dudes. Um, you know, it's, it's essentially, they're, they're essentially playing a game on behalf of wealthier players in a sense, right? Um, that's fine, it's, it's, Axis is awesome. I think though what's likely is that the tasks and skills that people are going to do to, to generate uh, you know, benefit in these games are gonna become things that are more, um, evidently valuable. So for example, can you imagine, and I can, an axis where for, uh, in return for getting these rewards, the player was learning skills. Maybe they were learning how to do, how to code, right? And maybe they didn't even know that they were learning how to code, but they were. And as they go from level to level and get these rewards, they're actually gaining skills, which help them, right? Uh, become themselves a valuable asset to that game as, for example, engineers or designers or, uh, or evangelists. So uh, my, 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 my broader point is that, yes, Play to Earn is very likely the future of metaverse employment, but that it is likely to be more like employment and less like games over time. So do you think that 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 type of quote unquote like real world activity is going to be the main way how users earn in these worlds? Or do you think that 
Um, it'll just be you can you know mine these rocks in this in this game like a very simple kind of task, or you can you know learn chess and earn money. Do you, do you think that they'll be they'll be equal like 50-50, or do you think that um, the actual real life skills that's going to be a much larger portion of a way to actually earn value in these games? I think that the value to the game is higher when the user is doing non-arbitrary tasks, which is why I think game designers or whatever you want to call it, environment designers will over time gravitate towards rewarding people for, for, for non-arbitrary achievements because they can tap those and make money off of them. So I, I do think that over time we'll see this gradual tendency towards functional uh, accomplishment. Uh, it, it might still be gamified. It might still look like a game. But in the course of doing this thing, the player is creating something which is itself of value to other people, not just in the context of the game. That's such a cool concept. I, I've never actually thought about that because I'm, I'm, I'm so used to like thinking of World of Warcraft gold farming where, you know, you pay someone in Asia to, to give you gold and they've spent all day kind of, kind of acquiring that gold. And now we see with Axia, you're bringing the creatures, you're battling, you're winning, you're earning the token. But it, the idea of actually learning a quote unquote, you know, real skill like coding because it's more valuable to the, to the game itself, that is just such a cool idea that that's going to be probably gamified and rewarded. So that that's crazy. Right. And we're actually already seeing it. If you, if you, if you want to think about Roblox, right, because Roblox is giving people tools to become designers and developers of games. Again, these are simple tools, right? They're kind of, uh, you know, uh, scaffolded tools, but nonetheless, essentially it's a way of learning how to be a kind of game developer designer and so on. And, and not to mention a business person, because when you're in Roblox and you have a little, your own little game world, you, you learn how to market, you learn how to manage. So that's an example of, of a game which kind of, without even intent, it designed to be educational, but it is educational because inevitably as people develop these games, learn how to run them, they're gaining skills which are exportable and both valuable to Roblox and valuable to the player. That's incredible. It's 100% correct. And it's, it's, it's shocking that I don't think Roblox, you know, went out on a mission to, you know, be able to teach thousands of, younger people how to manage people how to develop you know games and how to do all these things but it just so happened that they're they're teaching them very valuable skills it's, it's such right. a cool concept yeah all right so do you have any thoughts we're switching gears here do you have any thoughts on DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous oh. organizations i i think this is the um I, well I, sh I shouldn't say DAOs, but I, th I think if i had to pick a single idea that is um most exciting about um about the about about blockchain and particularly about sort of the Ethereum ecosystem and what has you know has come out of it, it's the notion that a group of people and it could be a small number of people can come together around a very very nascent idea, pool time, pool resources, and then that thing can then grow organically, right? So whether you call it a DAO or, or whether it's just some, you know shared wallet or just a bunch of people working on a project together, the the flexibility of pooling and, 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 and sharing resources and then benefiting in the form of tokens from those successes is to me an absolutely uh, you know, quantum leap in the history of capitalism, right? And, you know, capitalism's always been about this, coordinating labor, coordinating capital and sharing in the benefits of it. But 
the mechanisms are clumsy. And even as they get better, they're still clumsy, right? If you've ever tried to raise money for a small company, oh boy, <laughs> you have to spend a lot of time with lawyers. And the easier we make it, it's still really, really hard. In many cases, it's very difficult, for example, to compensate an advisor. How do you do it? It takes a lot of paperwork. How do you compensate someone who just gave you a good idea? How do you, how do you reward a customer for being a first customer of a risky project, right? All of these things are made very difficult with the traditional legal and financial systems that we have. But with tokens, all of these things become actually very simple. We can, we can again, put our, put our efforts uh, together and then reward anyone we want in any way we want with these representations of value. So even before DAOs, that's to me a quantum leap in, 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 what, capitalism, in what capitalism can be. But, but DAOs are obviously the, the instantiation of that idea in formal practice. And by making it a formal practice, it, make, it becomes potentially scalable. Now, I think it's still so early in terms of what those best practices should be. I mean, are we really serious about it being a kind of voting-oriented democracy? And if so, is it one token, one vote? These are all really hard questions. And if you think about them, they're questions that people have been asking about governance really since you know the ancient Greeks. So we're not likely to find out any perfect solutions to how to organize ourselves. But I'm 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 impressed with how much progress has already been made. And I'm a an investor in something called Syndicate DAO, which uh, you know as you may know came out of IDEO, which I think is one of the most thrilling uh, projects on the blockchain today. Which is it's essentially the easy and legal uh, enablement of on-chain investment clubs for any purpose. Uh, and, uh, it, it, and like literally every time I look at what they're doing, it's, it's, it, it almost brings tears to my eyes. It's so exciting. I'm, I'm also an investor in Syndicate, and it is, it is wild. I think uh, it's, it's really interesting. When you, when you lower the barriers and just allow people to freely create whatever, no matter what industry, essentially, you get just incredible amounts of innovation. And I'm wondering, like, if it always concerns me, because because right now we're we're I think we're in this great spot where we're seeing massive innovation in the NFT sector, the crypto sector, and and you know the metaverse more broadly. And um, I'm just concerned about you know a, a Google or a Facebook coming in and saying, hey, you know what, um, you guys should use our cryptocurrency or use our you know metaverse platform. And uh, and yeah, I, I mean, we kind of touched upon this a little bit, but how do you? How do you how do you combat that? How do you think that is the best way to to make sure that we keep this the, the ethos and the kind of this this um, uh, not, not lightly regulated sector you know keep, keep on to, to keep on innovating? Well, I, I think one of our biggest weaknesses right now is is our dependency on social networks, and um, you know I, I'm I'm as guilty as anyone, um, but the fact that you know we use um, you know, centralized networks for just about everything we do and have not developed our own decentralized alternatives. Um, you know, it may be, it may come back to be one of our greatest regrets um, because yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite true that um, that dependency, particularly around identity, but also around security, promotion, marketing, um, enabled the social networks to slide themselves into the crypto landscape, perhaps in an unextractable way. Um, you're right to be concerned. I, I am also. 
All right, well, switching gears here again, I want to talk about the Meta ETF, which is something that you put together with Matthew Ball and, and some other people. So first of all, like, what is an ETF? Right. So uh, an ETF is a kind of mutual fund uh, that is traded on a stock exchange, just like stocks. Uh, and uh, uh, they've become increasingly popular as people have become... Um, as people have started to use, you know, online trading systems, which, you know, now we have free free trading, so it's easy to buy and sell ETFs all you want. Um, generally, historically, uh, ETFs were based on indexes. Uh, an index is a rule-based basket of underlying investments. It could be stocks, it could be bonds, real estate, it could be anything. But by rules-based, uh, what that means is that there isn't like a, a portfolio manager actively making decisions. Hey, today we're going to buy this, tomorrow we're going to sell this. Instead, it's setting out a set of kind of almost like an algorithm, right, in advance and saying, all right, well, whatever securities meet the threshold of this algorithm, we will buy or we will sell. It's, it's, it's based on rules. And the purpose of that is to allow you to, as, a, as an investor in the index, be absolutely sure you're getting a particular thing. It's not based on the, the whim of a, of a human being, but rather it will always be the thing that the rules set out to, to, to create, uh, if designed correctly. Um, our ETF is what's known as the thematic index. So you can have the, you, you know, a theme of, I don't know, um, you know, things that are good for the environment or uh, companies that are uh, building robots or whatever. Those are themes and there are indexes for those themes. And uh, there are ETFs based on those indexes. Ours is based on the theme of the metaverse. Very cool. So, so instead of someone going you know, into the stock market and saying, I want exposure uh, to the metaverse, I'm going to buy these 20 stocks individually, you guys just provide one easy, easy kind of uh, access point for that. That's so, exactly right. So, so how, how do people... How do people set up an ETF? Like, you know, could I go and launch an ETF tomorrow? Like, like what, what is that process? Right. So, uh, no, actually, they're highly regulated and you have to work with um, an ETF provider who in turn works with a trust. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is, a, as I learned, quite an extensive process. Uh, we work with a fantastic and very entrepreneurial um, ETF provider called Roundhill who are pioneers, frankly, of a new generation of thematic ETFs. Absolutely brilliant group of guys. Uh, and um, they uh, were one of many providers who came to Matthew after his series of, I think, brilliant essays that laid out what the metaverse might look like in a very practical sense and said, hey, look, you've, you've created a blueprint here. Somebody is going to build an index based on the principles you've outlined in these these essays, it might as well be you. And uh, Matt thought about that and said, you know, that's probably uh, that's probably the right thing to do. We should probably help the people who are passionate about this topic have a sort of one-stop shop where they can uh, place a bet on the entire concept. In the same way, he might say, because he often does, we would we wished we could have gone back to 1994 and placed a single bet on the internet and not necessarily bought eToys <laughs> or Pets.com but rather uh, a weighted basket of the entire future sector and participated in what has been an, an incredible growth story um, up until now. Awesome. Okay. So can you describe or, or kind of explain deeper what, what is actually in 
the meta ETF? Is it like sure. mostly gaming companies? Is it you know mm. more networking? Like I love to hear. Sure. So the way the 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 ETF is actually um, constructed, and if uh, if anyone's uh, really excited about learning more about the the index itself, you can go to uh, ballmetaverse.co, which is the um, which is the you know the home site of the uh, the the index, and learn about the actual process and methodology by which it's constructed. But essentially, there are seven categories um, that Matt determined were the pillars, right? The the streams of capabilities and technologies that all needed to come together to enable that thing called the metaverse. And again, we're not talking about, you know, one day there's no metaverse and, and then the next day there is, but it's a, of course it's a process. Nonetheless, uh, all seven of these of categories, hardware, compute, networking, virtual platforms, interchange standards, payments, and content assets, and this identity services, all seven of those categories all need to exist and come together to enable the metaverse as he defined it. So once we had these seven categories defined, and once we'd identified companies with these categories, we created an economic model of the future of the metaverse that determined how, how much of the revenues and profits of that future huge metaverse thing, this multi-trillion dollar industry, were gonna flow into each category and determine that you know, category A would be X percent, category Y would be uh, the, you know, the next amount, you know, and so on, each category having their own weighting. Then within those categories, each company was in turn assessed for whether it was a pure play, which is to say the whole company is just dedicated to this theme, this category, whether it was a partial player in that thing, or whether it was it was it was just a participant, right? So a good example, just to, to give you one, and would be Facebook, right? So Facebook's obviously an enormous company which has very large investment relevant to the metaverse, which is that you know it has this big investment in Oculus and the content associated with Oculus, but that's just a small part of what Facebook does, and the vast majority of what Facebook does isn't directly connected to the metaverse. So when it comes to Facebook, you don't want to have them fully weighted because otherwise they would dominate the index. You just want to weight them a little bit, uh, proportionate to the amount of their total company that fits into that category, which in, in our in our in our market map is hardware. Does that make sense? So so you are trying to associate the the amount of the company that is relevant to the theme proportionate to that amount. Totally. Yeah. So, so build a framework and then kind of, uh, kind of in, inject the right companies according to, um, according to the parameters that you said before, essentially. Right. Now you still have to have the right people making these, these, uh, these decisions. So, you know, with Matthew's help, we assembled a, a, a council of seven experts. Um, their, their backgrounds and bios are up on the site and you should check them out. Every one of them is amazing. Um, it's an incredibly daunting group to be part of all of whom much more, more, know much more about this stuff than I do. Um, but you know, yes, video game, uh, designers, executives, hardware, uh, data centers, uh, crypto, Jesse Walden is involved. So it's a, it's a really, uh, well-rounded and diverse group. Um, they make the determination of how much each category is weighted and they make the determination of how each company is uh, ranked in terms of each category. That then generates 
essentially a portfolio, right? Uh, that you know, Nvidia gets this much, and then you know, Roblox gets this much, and so on, which is reevaluated every quarter as we assess again the weightings of the categories and then the rankings of the companies within those categories. So, so is the ETF or the assets that are or the kind of the the I guess portfolio of the ETF, the makeup of, of the ETF, is that readjusted every like 90 days or is it like a set schedule or is it just kind of every time the expert council gets together and says, hey, you know what, NVIDIA or whatever is no longer important. Now we're going to choose this company, Taiwan Semiconductor or whatever. Is that how it works or how does that, how is that, how does right. it change every, over time? Every 90 days on a particular date set in the bylaws, we all get to back together and we review every company in the database, every potential, every included company uh, and essentially ask ourselves, okay, this company, are they still you know, a pure play in compute? Yes or no? No, they are, and yes, they're not, et cetera. So every single company is reevaluated every quarter and new companies are included every quarter. If a company goes public that wasn't, you know, wasn't public before, then they would then be included. Um, so yes, every 90 days, the entire uh, database of companies is reassessed. So are you guys optimizing for return on investment or more so be staying kind of, I guess, true to the exposure of, to the metaverse? No, no, we're not. We're, we are strictly uh, focused on this question of, you know, what weight should each category have and what rank is each company within each category? Okay. Okay. Very cool. All right. So which, which aspect of the metaverse do you find most important for its, its, its free, uh, creation? Oh, you mean like what what technology needs to be present to enable it to exist? Yeah, so, yeah. Essentially, yeah. it's kind of a it's kind of an open ended, broad question. But um, do you know? Does everyone need to have the best hardware, or do we need to have the best you know five G network in order for it to actually come to fruition? Well, I I think you know this is a case where um, all all of these technologies and capabilities are going to be are going to need to be present for the thing that we all imagine to exist. But, um, but one of the things that I think is underappreciated is how difficult some of these problems are to solve. The problems of managing a massively multi-user real-time experience from the perspective of compute. That is to say, from the perspective of data centers and, 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 and literally of the computers that are in those data centers. Um, we are going to need several generations of improvement in chip design uh, in network architecture uh, and in provisioning to reach the the level of vividness and interaction that is required to create a lifelike experience. Yeah, if if you look at the the categories in the Meta ETF, it it's compute, networking, virtual platforms, interchange standards, payments, content asset, identity services, hardware, and and yeah, so I I think that. It, you, would you say compute is on like the lowest level of, of the stack or would you say hardware is lower than that? No, we, by hardware, we tend to mean the devices by which users um, experience. So I, I, you could call that device hardware. Um, okay. Our, our, our hardware category refers to headsets, phones, uh, gloves, uh, you know, accelerometers. It's the stuff that we use to, to experience it. Um, and of course, there, there, there are breakthroughs happening in this category every day now. It's really exciting. Um, no, what, what we refer to as compute is, as you say, that, that, that you know, the, the generation of the world itself, right? The computers that, that actually power the experience. 
So do you think that there's a, I, I feel like the, the metaverse, I mean, and it's, you know, what we, if we kind of had it formed today right now, it would just be almost totally on Amazon and Google and, and kind of <laughs> these big, these big data providers, which, you know, is probably a pretty bad, uh, you wouldn't want the meta, like, even if it is maybe decentralized, but if it's hosted on Amazon, then it's not really decentralized, right? So um, don't you, don't you need to build some sort of infrastructure, like, so let's say, you know, Filecoin, but but for hosting the metaverse, I guess, or, or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, uh, uh, as, as my mother would say, from your lips to God's ears or whatever, for sure, yes. But uh, these are very, very challenging technology problems. And um, as, as far as my fears of centralization, I probably fear centralized hosting uh, a little less than I fear, for example, like centralized identity or centralized security. Which isn't to say that I don't fear it. I do, and which isn't to say that we don't need to centralize compute because we do. But uh, it, you know, on my long list of paranoias, that one is lower, um, just because I see the way that the, the hosting market has stayed reasonably competitive even now. So, if you had unlimited an unlimited budget, unlimited resources, and you could design the best kind of compute system for the metaverse. What would it what would it look like? Just just oh. you know, if we had to throw it out there and just wouldn't that be cool? So I mean, I, we talk about this in some of the essays, but this the, the dream right is one where um, there's essentially a token economy of compute, which takes advantage of all these dormant devices that we all have, um, and takes advantage of the proximity of these devices to you potentially. So what if you're walking down the street and you are um, you know seeing an augmented reality around you? And that augmented reality is being generated on compute, um, being powered by uh, computers inside that office building that aren't even being used right now because the employees are home. You know what I mean? And all of it dynamically resourced, dynamically allocated based on need and paid for um, uh, on a, in, in some kind of auction-like framework. If I, had to, if I had to magically snap my fingers, that's what I'd make. I'm surprised no one's pursuing that as of now i mean i mean people are already building you know filecoin and we have Gollum. uh so we, we have these types of decentralized compute platforms or, or storage platforms so um i wonder why uh that you know one specifically built for hosting quote-unquote the metaverse is not really hasn't really been started yet well maybe we should start it um on the other hand um you know it's 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 hard to get people to prioritize strategic decentralization sometimes um, when when hosting is is so cheap and convenient on these centralized platforms. And uh, again, that's that's a that's a that's a kind of repeat of the situation we're in with social and identity right now. Um, you know, like there there've been a, a bunch of efforts, of course, to create you know really decentralized social networks, but none of them have had that. None of them have managed to, to really get off the ground. And, and when you think about, for example, NFTs, I mean, our, our dependency on, 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 you know, on Twitter is, is really kind of crippling right now. So, um, you know, it's another good example of how uh, we, we, you, 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 you it, it's a good example of how it's difficult to get people to prioritize the projects that may ultimately turn out to have been really, really essential. Totally agree. All right. So, so in your opinion, 
what are the biggest threats to the the emergence of the metaverse? Do you think it's more of like a, a big tech company kind of taking over like Facebook or is it more of a regulatory issue? What do you think are, are the largest threats? Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's probably right. I mean, first of all, there's there's a lot of serious technology hurdles uh, to create vivid, massively multi-user persistent uh, spaces. Um, really serious problems. And I am 100% confident they'll all be solved, but it's but it's it's a it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's there's a lot of real hard engineering to be to be done still. Um, that said, it is likely that because of that, um, you know, a company like Facebook or Google or whoever will have a version of something like the metaverse first. And I don't see that as uh, a threat exactly. Uh, you know, again, like I worked at AOL and that was what AOL was. It was like a private version of the internet. Um, the reason AOL was ultimately not satisfying was because there was just more good stuff outside of AOL than there was good stuff inside of AOL. And it became difficult to prevent AOL users from busting out and trying to get to the good stuff. Um, and I suspect that will happen here also, which is to say we'll have very, very, very good, but ultimately finite corporate mini verses, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever you call a metaverse that isn't really a metaverse. And um, those will be really successful for a while. AOL was unimaginably successful, much more than people recall. It was a, it, it totally dominated uh, the, the 90s from the perspective of usage. When, when, I, when, I, when we had our New York Times website and our AOL New York Times site, the AOL site was dozens of times bigger than the website. There was way more users there. But over time, uh, more companies put, put up websites like ours, and there was just more stuff that wasn't on AOL that was. And the same thing will happen with the miniverse and the metaverse. Eventually, the metaverse will have a greater um, you, you know, array of activities, a greater array of excitement, a greater array of, of entertainment, of educational opportunities, of economic ones, of freedom, of discourse and people will prefer it. Awesome. So I, I want to go back a little bit to uh, when you were talking about the the current market of uh, you know the current NFT market. Now we have you know collectibles, we have gaming, we have art, and and these are all you know multi hundred billion dollar market sizes, potential market sizes, and very exciting. But it it's almost like you're just scratching the surface of what NFTs will encapsulate. And you I look so, at. Yeah. And you look at the, the the potential use cases here. You know, property titles, uh, all IP, uh, capital markets, kind of anything with capital market transactions, derivative contracts, etc. So, yeah, wh why do you think that NFTs have entered these initial markets first? And what do you think it'll take for NFTs to really kind of take on the the more regulated, structured markets that uh, that are like the more quote unquote big time? Oh well. Um... So, the, so, so let's, let me take the first question first. So, you know, the, the, the big three use cases that we, we have so far are, um, you, know, you know, art. And I think, I think it's, a, it's a kind of art. It's a particular kind of art. It's a very exciting kind of art. But it's, even, but it's, it's just one particular kind. So that particular kind of art, um, these sort of avatar collections, whatever you want to call that, and um, these game pieces. And again, all three of these are very closely related. So in a way... It's just a sliver of a sliver that we've experienced so far. I think the reason those have, have worked have had to do with the people who um, are 
are in crypto right now. I mean, so for example, there's this orientation towards community and gaming in the uh, the NFTs that are created because the people who are in crypto do a lot of that stuff <laughs> and we like it, you know? Um, you know, like our, our, our Leonardo da Vinci, you know, Beeple um, does, you know, funny science fiction slash horror parodies of our favorite crypto personalities. <laughs> it's a good example of the people who are the buyers, right? We like, that's the stuff we like. So, you know, a lot of what uh, exists, exists because of who the buyers are. And it's important to constantly remind ourselves that the total number of buyers of NFTs is really, really small, really small. It's really, really hard to do this stuff still. And it's not obvious to a lot of people why they should. So Again, like the stuff we've seen is related to the very particular tastes of a very particular psychographic demographic, uh, who I am proud to call myself a member of, but I'm, I am under no illusions. I'm particularly representative of the of the world. Um, in terms of, you know, how we get to the sort of broader use cases, I think the answer is really startups. I mean, uh, we're going to start seeing Web two people, and that's a weird word, but you know, more traditional web entrepreneurs people who have had e-commerce companies, people who have had um, SaaS companies, people who have had business intelligence companies, and, you, know, you know, all these kind of um, experienced entrepreneurs come into this crypto space and see what is exciting about it from their perspective. And they're going to see this technology in ways that the people who have lived in it up until now don't. They're going to say, oh, wait, I see a great way to solve my problem with, I don't know, my, my SaaS for dentists. <laughs> I've got a vertical SaaS for dentists, and I'm going to solve this really particular problem with NFTs, and it's going to be a great way to solve it, right? That's not something that, like, a, an NFT-ish native entrepreneur would see, but it's something that someone who has been building SaaSs for vertical industries might. And so that's really the way that we're going to expand the use case we're going to expand it by bringing people with other kinds of experiences and needs love that all right so uh, is there any you know news or thoughts or ideas that, that you want to touch upon before jumping into the closing questions no i, I just i mean i don't want to flatter you but <laughs> you, you when when um you know your your podcast was really one of the ways that i i learned about nfc's it wasn't something that i had actually imagined uh uh, existing and I learned about them rather late from my friend Aaron Lammer, who does Coin Talk and who's a brilliant journalist and, and a brilliant songwriter. And he's like, you know, you're you're not going to believe these crazy, crazy new things called NFTs. And I was like, I, this is awesome. How do I learn more? He's like, here's the podcast. So you were actually you really were my doorway into this, and so I want to thank you for that. Oh, that that's so awesome to hear. Yeah, I, I think uh, having this podcast has been like a superpower because I get to basically sit down with someone for an hour or so and just pick their brain and learn from them and also, you know, create content. So build my own brand as well. So it, it just like, it just hits it from every angle. So it, it, thank you so much. It's, 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 it's huge that, that, uh, that you said that. And, and I really appreciate it. All right. So I, I want to ask just before closing question, one more question. What, what is your, your what is your grand five, 10 year vision with, with everything that you're working on? Do you want to, you know, be like, yeah, what, what, what do you want to be doing, you know, in five, 10 years from now? I really some of these projects that uh, Matt and I are working on with these, you know, film companies and video game companies are going to take a long time to um, manifest. Um, but they're really exciting. They are completely new ways of thinking about how the creative process can operate. 
And uh, I, I, I think it'll take five to 10 years for them to come into being. But um, I'm really, really confident that they are going to change the world. Could you give me like a sneak, like a sneak peek, like a very high level, like what, what, what is it that you're, that, that you guys are, are working on that, that you think is, is going to be the, the secret sauce of, of, of this kind of metaverse? So I, 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 one of the things I would just say is, is that like, and I, and actually I just wrote about this with, um, so this group of, of people and this, this, this group of people that I work on essays with the dark star doubt, um, and we like to write about the future of media and, um, we just wrote this essay about IP and one of the points that we made in the essay, which is about blogging and hip hop and about, um, NFTs is that NFTs are a kind of unbundling of IP. They break it into little pieces that everybody gets to hold and touch. And, and while this isn't anticipated by many of the people who are issuing, uh, NFTs right now, this unbundling is going to enable remixing. People are going to put these things together in powerful ways that the creators, uh, the unbundlers themselves did not envision. And once things get remixed, uh, there's a completely new reality to them. They take on new meaning and new power. So what I think is most exciting about the future of, of, of this kind of intellectual property, this kind of media, is the idea that we're going to see story worlds that users create. Right. So far, we imagine uh, worlds of, I don't know, Marvel or worlds of uh, Tolkien where, you know, there's a, a, a group of people, a small group of people who create the content that is enjoyed by the fan. And the fan can write you know, fiction on their own, but it's essentially, you know, off in the corner. It's, a, it's, it's, it's ignored or it's only loved by other, you know, fellow super fans. I think we're going to enter a world where where content becomes unbundled and then recreated, repackaged, remixed, and reintegrated so that the next MCU, if you want to use the example, will be one where user-created stories become canonical. That is that is so cool. I It reminds me, I was recently speaking with someone who said how, you know, we're seeing all these kind of anonymous characters on, on Twitter and buying and selling NFTs and whatnot. And, and you know, with especially with this high-value items, you know, the history of the item is very important, right? And so, you know, it's cool to say, uh, oh, yeah, this ape, you know, this Twitter ape mm -hmm. or whatever, he bought this piece. And, and now that Twitter ape becomes part of the history and part of the story. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of making this, they, they said it was like, it's like the RPG, like NFT, crypto, this whole metaverse. It's almost like the RPG is like the world itself. It's like your life. And like you, you get to be a part of it as it progresses. And what you're talking about, like goes hand in hand with that. I think that's exactly right. I think, I think the most exciting way to think about both crypto and the metaverse is that it's a big world that we're all building together love that absolutely love that all right jonathan this has been insane let's jump into the closing questions Here we go what is your favorite video game well i have to be honest and admit that it's it's twitter <laughs> oh twitter i like is my that favorite video game i like that i i haven't heard that one yet all right what is your favorite aspect of, about uh, about twitter I think the I think it's you know you talked about superpower the, the podcast is superpower but um Twitter really is too uh, and it, what it's by the way what makes it such a daunting threat to crypto um, because I have met so many so many brilliant people who have become really close friends through Twitter and through the most the most painless and innocuous ways you know just writing a simple thing like hey I'm thinking this 
can somebody help me find someone who else is thinking this? And they can and they do. And my God, what a revolution in human, in human social behavior where from all over the world of these tens of millions, like hundreds of millions of people who are engaged in this network, I can find someone else who's having the same weird thoughts that I am. Yeah, I, it's you're absolutely correct. It, it's it's so crazy that uh, that Twitter is a thing. Just just and also for the most part, the vast majority of people on Twitter are very friendly and helpful. And so so when you have people with good intentions, you know, all, all on this one interconnected platform where you know everyone can communicate instantly, like cool things are going to happen. Well, the other thing about Twitter is, and this is a massively underappreciated tactic, which is that people will frequently on a kind of knee jerk behavior be kind of accidentally rude and the it's 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 really not hard to just respond and say oh i didn't mean that i hope i didn't offend you and generally speaking people's reaction is oh okay i'm sorry i didn't mean to act that way so it there's a really underappreciated way to diffuse the bad stuff that twitter's famous for i agree i agree all right what is your single favorite nft that you own oh well i so I love Mirror. I don't know if you, your listeners are familiar with Mirror, but um, you know it's uh, you know obviously I come out of publishing and I, I love text and love writing, so I own a bunch of Mirror NFTs and I, I've created a bunch of Mirror NFTs with with my Darkstar gang. I'd have to say my Mirror NFTs are my proudest NFT possessions. I love that. All right, what is your most controversial thought relating to the metaverse? I don't know if it's controversial. I, I do think that enthusiasts like me should be much more open than we tend to be about the potential risks and problems of people spending a lot of time in imaginary worlds. Um, I'm not going to, I, I mean, I don't accept as a premise that human beings have, have never not lived in imaginary worlds. I think we always construct the world around us and, you know, uh, ancient human beings lived in a world where they imagined that the heavens were alive with gods and monsters and that the rocks spoke to them and so on. So we've always lived in worlds where we projected on meaning and presence around us. Um, but at the same time, there is a difference to a world that's so vivid and immersive, engaging and addictive that people might not want to leave. So I do think we should be, uh, I do think we should internalize these questions and think hard about them. I don't know if that's controversial, but I do think it's important. No, I, I, I definitely think it's controversial. I, I think that, so like, I, I look at today, and if you, you know, you know, the average person spending, what, eight or nine, ten hours on, on screens, like between computer, TV, phone, and, and if you told someone like 20 years ago, hey, we're going to be addicted to these like screens where we're going to be on them all day, people would be like, oh my gosh, that's so dystopian, that's so spooky, um, you know, I don't want that future, right? And and I, I, even me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want a future where we're all plugged in the metaverse. I mean, I kind of do, but 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 like part of me doesn't, <laughs> right? And, and like, but but like, I think I forget who it was, but yeah, someone told me is like, you, you don't design people don't design these technologies uh, in 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 this fashion where it spooks people or freaks people out, right? So I think there will be a point in time where you know, where are you spending all of our time on screens? What who cares if it's a headset or if it's a screen, right? It's going to be kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of a similar similar thing. And we're going to design it in a way where it's not scary and people are just going to do it and it's, and it's going to be normal. So I don't know. I So I do agree with you. There are massive, there could be massive negative ramifications of that. But I think in the way that we'll design it, it'll just be 
become like a totally normal normal part of part of life potentially i could be wrong who knows yeah i i mean again i i like i said i i think we've always constructed imaginary worlds you know the, the you know you look you walk down the street and there's there's street signs what are those well that's augmented reality that's symbols projected on the physical world right um it's 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 part of what humans do we 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 put symbols and meaning on our environment um and if we can use this technology to connect more meaningfully with people uh to have deeper relationships and to be transformed by those relationships into being better people um to being better custodians of each other and of the planet then i think that immersion is is valuable and uh i think that's the right way to think about it which is yeah there's a certain cost to uh or a certain risk to immersing ourselves in these kind of artificial worlds so so let's let's make sure that we're doing good things with them i agree all right if you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the metaverse ecosystem what would it be i think i think i would want people to have a greater sense of the history of these um these ideas, they go a long way back. People have been talking about simulated realities uh, at least since the 1960s. Um, these are not new ideas. We've been um, not just not just you know contemplating, but really starting to design the, the frameworks for them for a long, long time. And uh, there is a misunderstanding, I think, people have that this is sort of like a flavor of the week. It's not, this is a, this is a uh, technology paradigm that has been decades and decades of development. Awesome. All right, last question. Where do you see the metaverse in three years? Three years, that's a tough one. Let's see. Um, I, think, I think we are going to see this fairly inevitable convergence of the virtual world crypto blockchain concept, right? The Decentralands, the Somnium space. I think we're going to see a convergence of that paradigm with the game paradigm, you know, the Zed and the Zed run and the Axes and Gala paradigm. I think those things are going to come together such that, you know, the games have more open world creative capacity and the open world creative capacity uh, spaces have more gaming elements. Love that. All right, Jonathan. Well, this has just been an absolutely amazing conversation. I loved hearing about your background at AOL, New York Times, and even the Expert Network was super interesting. And you just know so much about the metaverse and and, and so deeply about different aspects that, that I really have no clue in. So I, I love to, to j just be able to learn from you. If people wanted to find out more about yourself or find out more about what you do, where should they go and what should they do? Oh, definitely check out ballmetaverse.co. It's, it's, there's a ton of information there about the space. All of Matt's essays on uh, the metaverse are there. And honestly, the last... Unfortunately, the last few seconds of Jonathan's audio cut out, but I'll provide all the links that Jonathan spoke about in the episode notes. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.